Welcome to the Number 8 Wire podcast. I'm Johanna Van Alst, business coach and consultant. In this series, I'll be talking to people in business who have had professional and personal challenges, how they held it together through those tough times, and what advice they have to share that may help you. At the end of the podcast, I'll be highlighting the valuable takeaways, so be sure to listen out for those. Welcome to another episode of Number 8 Wire. I am Johanna Van Alst. This episode is the extraordinary story of Matt Peters, who in 12 years went from dropout uni student to big-time property developer, Lamborghini owner, parenthood, the GFC, and then bankruptcy, losing $30 million and everything he owned. He's been very generous. He's going to share his pain, his mistakes, but most importantly for you, the learnings he took from that time and how he made his way back. So once again, this is Matt Peters' inspiring story on humility, rebuilding and finding purpose. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Tell me, Matt, when was your first property purchase? Take us back to that time. What were you doing? Where were you? Actually, I was attending the university at the time of Victoria. And um, so I think I was probably 19. Um, some mates of mine had come out, come back up from Otago and they were pretty pretty messy sort of bunch. They were flatting in a house called uh, at uh, 3 Lower Watt Street in Wellington and overlooked the water where the, the ferry came in. So it was a nice position, but it was a typical flat, if you like. And I went to a party one night with them there and it sort of got out of control. You know, there's a lot of people there and typical in Otago fashion, you know, couches were getting burned. And, Hold on, what year, was, round about what year was this, Matt? Because this uh, takes me back to the 80s. Are we back there or the yeah. 90s? Well, the early 90s. Early yeah, 90s, so, okay. Um, I'm 47 now, so it was early 90s. But so um, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty big evening and, and lots of people there in a typical student party, if you like. And, I stayed there the night. The owner, I would say she was in her 20s, um, and the house had been gifted to her by a grandmother, and she turned up the morning after, and you can imagine what she saw, right? It was horrific. <laughs> I sort of met her at the door, and she told me who she was, and you know, she came and looked around, I turned up, but she was you know, horrified at what she'd seen. She just burst into tears, and sort of mm. I felt really, really sorry for her, and I you know, took her down the stairs and sort of said, look, it's not major, it's not structural damage, and it was pretty hard to console her, so as we were walking down the 60-odd steps, I got to the bottom, and I, I said to her, look, do you want me to buy the place? And, and she sort of said, you know, well, would you, would you really, you know, could you buy the place? And so we sort of left it at that, and we decided we'd discuss later on, and I walked back up the stairs, and the, and the boys were sort of like, you know, I'm like, how long have we got? You know, when are we getting out of here? And oh my God, what a debacle, and... <laughs> I said, well, as it happens, um, you know, it's probably not as bad as you think. I've bought the place. And, and they're like, you're what? You, you... <laughs> I mean, we didn't have any money. Like, I mean, we were students, right? We were poor. I mean, basically, any kind of, kind of money that came in the door was, went to the pub, essentially. So, um, so uh, they said, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, I had, I had no idea, you know. So, and so I, I did know a little bit about doing up houses, you know, like spray painting them and a bit of plastering. And I used to, coming from a farm, being a farm boy, I had some practical skills, you know, could, could you know, pour concrete, could make driveways and could make sheds and, and do retaining walls and all that sort of stuff. So I was reasonably okay on a hammer, but I had no idea about where I was going. And this, uh, I put an ad in the paper. I remember that to this day, like it was the only thing I could think of at the time, looking for an investor. And an apple orchardist from Hawke's Bay came in and said he'd be the investor. And he came down and met me and had a look at the property. And we went in a 50-50 partnership and did the house up and sold it. And made like hold on, hold on, hold on. You put an ad in the paper. 
and someone went, yeah, yeah mate, I'll give you some money. <laughs> I don't remember what they had said. I should have kept it. But I guess it was just honest. I sort of said, look, I've got this opportunity. We've, I've got this house. It's in a good area. It needs to be done up. I've got some skills in terms of being able to do it up. I've got, a, I've got it under contract um, and I don't have any money, you know, so I need an investor. And yeah, this apple orchard, this, yeah, it was quite strange. He, he, he replied to the ad and then came down and, and met me and looked at the house and I had some figures together and at that stage yeah. I didn't even know what GST was. So, you know, like, yeah. so it was pretty rough. But, um, but he was my first partner, essentially, in a, in a property deal. Wow, that's just really random. He provided the money, you provided the labour? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I ran the job and, and did as much of the work as I could. Ended up, you know, getting some of the lads to come in and give me a hand at times, you know, when, when there was a lot of jobs or a lot of work to be done or I needed some help. I had to stop them from painting the window six times because it was the only view you could get for the cricket. So, um, yeah. you know, so it was kind of like <laughs> yeah. just a bunch of mates, you know, they, were, they got to live there for free if they gave me a hand and, and yeah, we sort of, we did it up. And, and then from there I did another two or three. So I sort with of the same, with the same investor? Um, no, he, he only invested once. Um, we did quite well. I mean, you know, he did, he did, I don't know why we didn't actually end up going through it together. I think I took my money and then used that to the next house. What I did is I'd contracted it and, and agreed a late term settlement. So I had enough money to actually um, give it a flat. And I think probably borrowed a few of the other boys money as well. By the time I'd done the house up, um, I'd sold it before I had to settle. So I didn't need yeah. as much money. Just to explain it to people, you had access to the place. You were investing in it, but you hadn't settled on it. So that's how Correct. that worked. Yeah. yeah, sort of got a, a delayed settlement, if you like, like yeah. a six-month delayed settlement, and that gave me enough time. It was during the summer, so I could get in there, and I was working pretty big days to try and get the job done as much as I could, you know, as fast as I could, and so then what, secured a contract for sale before I had to purchase. What made you see that there was money to be made? What were the indicators for you at the time? Well, I'd sort of, I mean, when I was at school, as I say, I, I mean, I used to I used to have what I called a, like a spray painting business, right? So yeah. I used to go into... Um, um, sausage block units and I'd, I'd, I'd do a contract to plaster and paint these houses you know in the internal of these units and the external of these units so I kind of had a bit of an idea about how to do houses up and that sort of thing and so it was really just I got better and better and better at knowing you know what's the price that you know just and I started getting systems like you talk to the agents what are my end values and I ended up becoming good friends with some of the agents and and they would you know if they found a house that had some promise and and um, and it was in the right price point sort of thing and and I did my sums, I could always find a margin, you know. You sound like a serial entrepreneur, you know, <laughs> starting off really young. Oh, yeah. sound good. <laughs> did you ever finish your university quals? No, no, I didn't. I actually, I did sort of two years. I did first year law and then, um, and then I was doing history and politics. And I loved it, like, don't get me wrong. But what happened was, is that just sort of started taking over all my time. I mean, I remember when I turned up to the the exams and, and, and the boys, my mates just, just cracked up laughing. What are you doing here, Peters? You haven't even turned up, you know, like there's just no way. Um, I actually passed. So I got a, like, you know, for my first year, Laura passed and I hadn't been to any of their lectures, but I'd read some of the books, you know? And so, um, you know, but I sort of thought, well, I might as well turn up. I'd paid for the year. So, um, so, but you know, that fell by the wayside. Yeah. So moving on from there, you're, you're doing up a few houses. How, did you get bigger? Did you get more ambitious? What, were you, what was well, your I was biggest... coming back from a do again, a little party. And um, I met this lady on the street and she was selling this commercial unit. It was on the corner of Riddiford and Rintoll street in Wellington. And it was a quite a lovely old building. In fact, originally it was the old Langham. It was built to be um, a hotel. And then just as it was getting finished, I think it was in the really early nine, 1900s, 1906 or something, I think it was completed, um, and the area went dry. So, um, so it had quite a sort of a checkered history, and, and it had been run down, and she was, selling, she was selling the whole building, 
And, um, you know, she was selling it for like 550000 and I went through it. And I don't know why. I was, I was hung over at the time, sort of going through this building thinking, I can't afford, you know, I just said to her, look, I can't afford half a billion. And she said, well, why don't you come through and have a look anyway? And we were yakking away and we got on quite well. And, and then she said, you know, um, you know, here's some of the information, see what you got. So I took the information home and the building was bringing in like a 17% return, which was pretty high. It had its, had, had its issues. But of course, I'd, I'd been a handyman of sorts. I could have, I could see what the issues were and I didn't really fully understand um, the, the upgrading that were required from an earthquake perspective. But um, I rang up, <clears throat> my, I had rang up two brothers up from Auckland who were um, in property and they, and they came down and it sort of had a bit of a laugh. And then when they came down and they saw it, they, they recognized that there was opportunity there. And, um, and they, they put the money up and backed me to, to, to do the building up essentially. And, and I ended up working for, for both of those brothers at, uh, in the future. And then, um, I don't know how, but I ended up with this uh, a contract on um, uh, the old Bob Jones house, which was a 15-story building across the road from Frankett's Park. It's one of the only 13 or 16 buildings along the waterfront. Yeah. Um, and back then, I was, you know, was paying like seven and a half percent for um, for the cost of my funds, and and this thing was bringing in 11 and 11 and three quarter percent. So I just well, that's felt, pretty well, tight. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, but. Well, it was like a ten million dollar purchase, right? So it was a big commercial building, and I, you know, I was obviously at that stage, um, I was relatively ambitious, and I, I, I grabbed a couple of investors and put a million bucks or something together, um, and managed to secure some funding, um, and uh, it was called Axon House. It was branded Axon House back then, and I had my office there, and so that was kind of it. I, I was then I then I started. We started doing um, apartments and that sort of stuff, and and we were into a full time, I guess, development mode at that point. And then okay. I moved up to Auckland after I'd finished it. I sold that building. Bob Jones was trying to buy it off me, funny enough, um, um, when I bought it. But um, someone came along and like offered me a million dollars more than what I'd paid in one year. And um, so I thought, well, I've made a million bucks in a year and, and, I, and I sold it. But I, I should have kept it because it was making three quarters of a million dollars, um, you know, <laughs> just off the income. Yeah. Well, I learned some really good fundamentals through all of that process, yeah. some really strong fundamentals. Yeah. Um, pretty much basically made a lot of mistakes, really. And that's all I was doing was making mistakes. Okay, yeah. so what were some of the things you learned at that time, Matt? Share some well, of those gems with us. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the the first house was 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 my first lesson in the sense that I bought it for two hundred thousand dollars, and then um, after a period when I got a little bit more experience, I realised that I could have sold the house for two hundred sixty grand and done nothing. Um, yeah. Instead, I spent sixty grand and sold it for three hundred twenty grand and made sixty grand. So I spent a year mucking around with it, and um, and all the work and, and and having fun. I don't regret it, but essentially it made me realise that. You know, obviously, at the time of your purchase, there are times when um, exiting it at that point in time um, may be a better opportunity than, uh, than than doing it up. You know, see of what time, how much time you spend in a property. The Axon House, uh, the Bob, old Bob Jones House, actually taught me a lot, and that was, um, you know, and, I, and that was kind of like where I felt it would have been good to have a mentor on your back. You know, because I sort of thought selling it and making a million dollars in a year was was an amazing. Um, you know, a deal, I guess, but but really, what the, the the amazing deal was actually securing the property in the first place. It had sea views from level one all the way up. Yeah. Um, the floor plates weren't big, which meant that um, I was never exposed to one single large tenant. So it had uh, lots of little tenants, you know, thirteen or yeah. fourteen uh, little tenants. Some of them were government tenants, so it was quite strong, and it was in a really strong position. And the point was, um, you know, we were really I was making like four percent on top of what the cost of the funds were. So if I just kept on ploughing. The, um, the extra cash flow into the debt and drove the debt down. I could have kept that building, and then I mean I would have you know I would have I would have had more than a 
million dollars a year coming off it just as rental. So, um, so I guess that the lesson there was there are some things you shouldn't sell, and um, and I sold it, and then I ended up um, going into uh, you know apartment uh, development in Auckland, and um, and you know kind of that was where my downfall was, and 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 building apartments was much much more complex than what I was doing. Take us to your peak. I know there's a, a story here in the GFC. So um, I just finished um, Hudson Brown, which I built 132 apartments there. It was on um, leasehold land, um, and it was Nati Fatua leasehold land um, down by the railway railway yards there. But that was another mistake, as the council had passed all the subdivision there. And when we opened up that ground, there was a whole bunch. Of, it was uh, 8,000 parts of lead to um, oh, to one litre of soil or something. Which uh, wow. so we found a whole lot of contamination. So that cost. Like it was about one and a half million dollars to get rid of. At one stage, the council was saying that we had to send it off to France to get rid of it. So, so that was a good lesson. You know, you know, you need to try and find out as much as you can what's in the ground. Um, so, so we just finished those, and we'd moved on to another uh, large development nearby that had been a success. Um, I'd built the um, the arena car park, which is known as the arena car park now. So it was a five hundred and thirty car car park, and um, and I was just finishing off. I guess uh, you know, I had a I had a team of fourteen at that stage. The business had grown. I sort of thought I was the man, thought I knew everything, you know, and you know, clearly didn't really know much at all. But I was right, quite large, and it was at a it was at a time when banks were throwing money at you, so there was there was never a, a problem in terms of getting, um, I guess, getting debt. Give us a bit of um, context here. What year are we in? Uh, it was two thousand and eight, I think it was. Okay. Yeah, and well, when we were finishing the bill, so it was all up. It was a two hundred million dollar development, and. Um, uh, I was looking pretty good in terms of my sales. I'd sold uh, enough sales, obviously, to support the development, and um, and then the, uh, the the global financial crisis hit. So, so we we sort of finished the building right on the time when the GFC hit, and um, and what happened was there was twenty million dollars of my purchases couldn't settle. So I had um, you know mums and dads and and people who had bought apartments and some some small businesses had bought some of the commercial properties that I that I developed there. Um, and and I guess um, you know at the end of the development, um, I, I had a situation, a holding situation, whereby I'd owe I'd owe ten million dollars on thirty million dollars worth of stock. Um, but with with uh, the GFC hitting and twenty million dollars of my purchases, or the value of twenty million dollars of my purchases not settling, meant that I had thirty million dollars of debt and fifty million dollars of stock. So my my gearing ratio went from like thirty odd percent to sixty odd percent at a time mm-hmm. when. Um, banks having a real problem in terms of lending money, so that was kind of like the downfall. It was that was like the, you know, that was the beginning of the cards falling to pieces. We had other developments that we were on the go with, and and uh, they lost support as well, and so the, the house of cards fell down. Really, what happened? Slow, just slowing it down there for a minute. I'm trying to understand. You've got thirty million dollars worth of debt. Well, what happens is, you know, the, so the bank we had a bank we had the ASP. I think it was from memory. Um, they get paid out first, you see. And so at that time, I had like a second tier debt, which is, so you got your bank debt, which is relatively efficient, cost efficient. And um, and then our, and then we had more expensive uh, debt because, you know, we needed so much more equity, more equity than I had. I um, I mean, we had profits in there of north of sort of $12, $20 million. But, but what happens is, is the second tier debt, um, which was actually from New York, um, that was expensive. And the moment we couldn't pay them back on time because we, because we had um, contracts defaulting, um, their interest rates skyrocket, and and then they eat into your um, uh, or the equity that you've got in there, and obviously any profitability, and so they they essentially over a period of time because you can't get rid of them, you can't take them out, and you can't 
swap them for first tier debt, which is what yeah. the plan was. Because if I'd put a bank in there, if I only owed $10 million on $30 million worth of stock, I would have had a chance to have a bank in there and then the rentals coming in from the units and from the commercial would have paid for, you know, would have paid yeah. for that debt, would have yeah. covered that debt essentially. Um, but but because we couldn't get rid of the second tier debt because we had these uh, settlements that didn't happen, um, they took over the they took over the property and took over the building effectively. And so, yeah, you pretty much lose everything thereafter and then they go after your PGs and they look for, um, you know, they want to see if you've got a batch and a, car and so you know everything mm -hmm. got i lost everything essentially so okay. um there wasn't anything left okay so no home no cars no, home. <laughs> no. no i had to sell my batch which was the hardest um yeah. i had a little fly fishing batch down in um, a place called harapi in taupo and um you know we had to sell that up but you know uh, you know it was you yeah, pretty much and then that at that point um uh there was i had one development funny enough and i won't name the bank but I went down there, I remember going down there and um, it was up in Parnell and there was a big hole and the fence wasn't really secure and I sort of, and it was quite dark and the cars that go down there would have had to turn a 90 degree turn to get sort of to get around and, and pass this fence and I started panicking at that stage looking at what, you know, what else could go wrong and I, and I sort of thought, well, if a car goes down there and um, falls in this hole, you know, I'm going to be up for, um, I'll be up for manslaughter, not just, not just bankruptcy. So, um, I took some steps towards um, securing that that fence. I had some GST money coming in that the bank was expecting, and I and I passed the GST money to the builder to get the hole filled in. So I to, so I saved my own bacon essentially just to, to, to stop any. Um, you know, I guess really to make the site safe because the site wasn't safe, um, and that's when that bank went quite rogue on me. And and so after that, it was it was all over. You're going into bankruptcy. Take me through that. What does what does that mean? Does it, they probably, come and clamp you on chains or? No, no, no. Actually, they're, they're there to protect you. That, that was a lesson in itself. Um, and I had some I had some wise heads that at that time that I could actually rely on. I remember calling some people that I that I had a lot of respect for, and and they helped me in terms of look. It's you know it's actually not the end of the world. And in some ways, in fact, Peter Cooper, who was um, who had bought the car park, his advice was look. I, I think you, you let it happen. Because you're in a situation where it's just it's going to be impossible for you to get on top of the debts. The other point is with the GFC, with leasehold land, um, the properties that I did that I did own, you know, their values went through the floor, mm -hmm. um, and so for a short period of time there, um, the values went through the floor and the debt went through the roof. So there was just no way I could recover um, with that amount of with that amount of debt. So you know, I mean, I, I I fought it, and I spent you know weeks and months of you know stressing and worrying about everything. Um, you know, like, uh, it was really difficult, hardly any sleep. Um, you know, it was pretty tough, you know, and at that stage, um, Shelly and I had just had, uh, my wife, Shelly and I had just had, um, Tom who had just been born. So we had that as an added stress. Um, you know, I, I fought hard, worried about everything. And then, uh, one day it finally, um, it finally happened and it got closed on me and it was a little bit of a relief actually, because, um, I was really sort of running around worrying about everything and chasing everything and not being able to fix anything. I think that's probably yeah. the, that's the most, so you'd spent, you, you spent first, your first 10 years of your career or whatever you're doing, you know, I mean, being Mr. Fix it, knowing how to fix problems and, yeah. and having the support to fix problems. So I never really had, I'd never encountered a problem that I hadn't been able to find a solution to before. And, you know, and, and then of course you've got other people that you're letting down as well. So whenever you, whenever you go, luckily I didn't know any personal debt. So I didn't, so it was only really the bank that, um, that lost money with me and, there was a couple of um, uh, private investors, but they were bankers as well. So, um, so I didn't, I didn't have any 
personal debts to anybody. So I didn't hurt anybody personally, but I had my staff, you know, they were, they were doing their best to try and, um, to try and help out. And the last sort of month or two's wages couldn't get paid. And, and so, um, you know, everybody gets hurt when you go down and that, and that's probably the hardest thing when you're the leader of the team, um, you're actually causing all the hurt and, um, and you can't fix it. I think that's, that, that's really tough. The way that I went into it was um, I was going to embrace it. Um, it's there for a reason. Um, I had my, my sister was amazing. Um, she ended up making sure that all my books were in line and clean with the IRD. So I had no, no IRD issues, if you like. And, and that um, includes the GST? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they, okay. the, the banks took all the, took over, and so that wasn't my responsibility at the end when they decided to take the property over. So I kind of went in there with my hands up, you know, and and I felt the best thing I can do is um, give them everything they need. I had all my boxes, and I was I was pretty tidy. So I embraced the process, I think, and because of that, I believe that they then in turn protected me from um, other creditors and 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 also helped me through the process. I mean, they were fantastic. I mean, when you're in bankruptcy, you're not allowed to go overseas, which I never really understood. I would have thought if you'd been bankrupt, you'd want people to go overseas and never come back. <laughs> <laughs> and here they are, they're not wanting you to go. I just never understood that. But, I mean, uh, it was my birthday a year or two afterwards, and, and um, Shelley had asked um, the SNE if uh, she could take me to Australia or something because you weren't really allowed to leave the country. And, and, they, and they gave permission straight away. So they were actually fantastic. You know, I re- it was really funny because I... At the end of the sort of the bankruptcy, after about three years, I went and saw them and had a meeting with them. And, and they, I remember, you know, because uh, I'd been in really reasonable contact with them and, and they were really good people. And, and I remember them saying to me, you know, Matt, don't take this the wrong way, but we hope we never see you again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. Um, one of the things that stands out for me in this, in this little story is your um, openness. You just get better outcomes. Well, I think I, I sort of, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, that's who I am essentially, but, but also I kind of felt that, as I say, I was going to really respect what, what the process was and, and not fight it. For me, I could see that there was going to be some big lessons that come out of it and I didn't want to miss those lessons. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, you, you've glossed over it, but I'm going to go back. You're going through bankruptcy and you've just had your baby. You were doing the night feeds with Tom. I wasn't sleeping anyway. <laughs> so I, so I, and in fact, that was probably a godsend in a lot of ways. So it meant that I got to spend a lot of time with Tom. And, um, and, and I did all the night feeds, so it was like, I think, midnight or 11.30 or something like that, and then the three o'clock feed. And so I, I, I got quite close with him um, during that period. And, um, and it, it, was, it was actually kind of, I guess the point about that was, any break that you can get from the worry and any break that you can get from, you know, what am I going to do? You know, everything, you know, everything's failed because it's quite exhausting. So, so when you're, yeah. when you're running around, you know, constantly not being able to achieve anything, I think probably, you know, I remember lying on the couch thinking, you know, lying there after it all happened and thinking, okay, so now this is what depression feels like. But I think if anything, I was just exhausted, you know? And so Tom yeah. was a, he was a fabulous distraction for that. He's such, he was such a cool baby and he, he was a really hard case. Um, and a beautiful little man, and um, he had reflux, and so we had special um, milk powder for him, so he needed a little bit of special attention and that sort of stuff, and so I, I relished that, you know, and, I, and so I was, um, I was a real hands-on dad, and um, Shelley, my wife, had a business at that stage. She, well, she's always had a business um, most of her life since she was 19, which was a talent agency business, and so that enabled me to sort of be the stay-home dad, if you like, and um, yeah, so and, and, and when I look back on those times, they were, they were fabulous. I had a mate who needed some work done on some property, so um, and so I, I helped out with that, and that gave me a little bit of cash, which was good. 
that kind of helped bring some cash in the door, I guess. I don't know how I survived looking back. Um, you know, there was a couple of papers that needed to be written, so I, I, I sort of um, did a couple of jobs here and there, really, but, but essentially we were pretty poor, so it was, it was pretty tough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and, and especially from where we'd come from, you know, we'd come from um, pretty good income. Oh, I had an Aston Martin, and you know, we'd had Porsches, and we had, you know, I used to have a Lamborghini when I was 32, and, you know, an idiot running around in all these, you know, fancy cars, and I mean, nowadays I just drive a Land Rover Defender, and my focus is on my kids and, and family, so, but back then I was really young, you know, I was only sort of 32 when, when all of that happened, 33. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's easy on. enough to be seduced into all of those things, and that's what it is, you know, it is, it's yeah. a seduction to the superficial but then, you know, you get confronted with some reality like having your child and bankruptcy and you re-examine your values. Yeah. Coming back to the bankruptcy, how long does that last? Three years. How did you get out of that? So, um, you know, basically you spend a lot of time running around um, trying to make something out of nothing. Um, I think probably the hardest part through the bankruptcy was it made me realise that, so when I was trying to get something going, people would second guess you. I mean, before... Bankruptcy. I, I could lead a team of people, and this is where we're going. And no one would ever second guess you, and they would they'd come along and they'd help you achieve what, the goal that you're trying to achieve. Okay. When you're in bankruptcy, when you're just coming out of bankruptcy, everybody second guesses you, including yourself, right? So, I think probably for a good year there, I, I sort of I was just questioning myself and my judgment and whether I was capable or not. So that was that was pretty tough. I had a mate, a, a Ken Crossan, who um, who's an architect, and um, he rang me up one day and he said. Well, where are you? What are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to make something out of nothing, mate. He says, I've got your office in here. You need to come in and come into the office. He's a great mate. And I said, mate, I can't afford an office. I'm, like, I can't, I'm lucky I'm affording my rent at the moment. There's just no way, you know? And he's like, I'm not talking about you having to be charged. You, you know, you're coming in. You get into the office. You can't work from home. You've got to get back on your feet. And another good friend of mine who's now my partner, and I always remember him saying, activity breeds activity. So there was just... So little tidbits that I sort of hung on to and sort of thought, well, I've got to keep going. There's, there's no end to this until I, until I sort of get out of it. So, um, yeah, I, then I, I sort of I found a pretty good opportunity, um, got some other people involved. I mean, I started out again in a sense that I was putting things together, but I was taking a minor share of, um, mm-hmm. of the property transactions because I, mm-hmm. couldn't, I didn't have any capital to put in. And also um, none of the banks would want to bank me. So, um, so, you know, without that support, it's really tough to, to get going again. But um, I think just a slow and constant grind uh, and then um, doing a few deals, people having more confidence in you um, and every now and again something fantastic comes along uh, and, and, and then people are, you know, the important people are backing you again. And so now my business is, is in the, the best situation it's ever been. In fact, I look back on where I was prior to the bankruptcy or prior to the GFC and my business was, was nothing in comparison to what it is now. What so is today, it now? Tell, it's tell really us. solid. It's a solid business. It's not focused on transactions. It's focused as a property business. Um, it's really responsible in the sense that it's, um, it only takes on debt that it can sustain. So it has, a, I mean, I spent a lot of my years sort of, you know, looking at the feasibilities and looking at the profit and, and focusing on that. I, I had a creativity side to me where I enjoyed and I loved the creativity side of development. But now I spend my whole, my whole focus is on risk assessment, right? So you know, I, I just I spend my whole time looking at risk mitigation rather than the profitability of the business, and mm-hmm. um, and I think you know especially in, in times like this, which is you know with COVID nineteen, um, my business was really resilient to um, to COVID nineteen because of what had happened to me in the past. You know, I think that um, you know I think I think that uh, the lessons that I learned out of um, out of going down in my business was 
was the key to my business today. It's, it's, it's kind of what sets me up today. And it, and it, and it, it is the, it is the essence as to why the, the business is strong. So I, I look back actually now, I look back on all those tough times. I look, I look back at them with fondness. So I think to myself, and in fact, I look at the, I look at the bankruptcy as almost my last exam. I feel that I'm only now just mature enough. I know I've been in, in property for more than 27 years, but I only really feel like now that I'm, I, I can say that I'm a mature property developer or mature businessman in, in, in that sense. The business today is where we're doing, um, uh, we're, we're, we're involved in affordable, we're, we're involved in some social housing, um, we're involved in some, um, we're doing 33 houses up in um, Snell's Beach called Boathouse Bay, which is an architecturally driven beachside um, development. Uh, we're, we're doing 100 houses in Manukau plus another, another 400 odd houses there. So um, I'm, I'm not really involved in uh, multi-unit structures, but um, well, you know, so it's more like uh, a housing and affordable housing, which, which we love, we're involved in the Kiwi build. And, I like the program because one, it gives me an exit strategy, but more importantly, you know, my whole team and my design team and Ken Cross and my architect, who's my mate who, who helped me out at the beginning there. Um, we're quite passionate about uh, providing great homes for first home buyers. Yeah. Uh, we, we see a lot of the times when it comes to um, trying to produce affordable housing, people are stripping things out. Right? And we're really, you know, our view was we looked at it completely different. Uh, I've now got two partners one of them is particularly excellent with um, design and understanding design and cost of build, and um, and another partner who's done extremely well in business. So he's um, he's done very well, and so he helps us with our capital requirements. And and between the three of us, we all have a you know the, those essential skills to to form uh, a good development company. One thing I've taken out of this process, and that is, I've actually now realised you've got to get up for what you're passionate about. You mm -hmm. can't get up for a dollar. It just doesn't sustain you. And, and the thing is, is, with development, there's a lot of tough times in development. It's always trying. And there's such a variety of skills and a variety of people that, that, you, that you engage with. Uh, and, and just basically never-ending problems. You know, I mean, my phone, my, my, my phone when I get a message is, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Because that's yeah. essentially what we deal with, right? But, but there, and, and so my view is what helps me deal with those problems and strive in the business um, is, is, is the passion and the passion's got nothing to do with the money. The passion is what's really driving you for that product and also realizing what you love in the business, right? You love the, mm -hmm. like we love the, I love the problems. I love fixing the problems. I love solving the problems and I love the challenges. And I, so I, I guess in some ways I look at it now and I, I, I'm really, I really embrace the journey rather than the end. So I never really look at a project as, as a project really. It's just a portion of our business. Um, and it's, and it's all the other things that make our business successful and makes it enjoyable. So I love the people that you deal with. I mean, the variety of people that, that are involved. And we are really only one portion of the cog. And, and in, in a lot of ways, I guess I've learned that. I mean, when, when I was looking at all the things that had gone wrong in the business, and that's another thing, you focus on what you're doing wrong, which is when you're flying high and you're, you're doing well and everybody believes everything you say and everything's turning to gold and you, you don't really focus on any of the issues. But when, when the bankruptcy happened and the business went down, all you did was focus on the issues. Mm -hmm. And they all, all of a sudden came to light. So, oh, my God, why didn't I see those before? Mm -hmm. And there was many of them, you know, and one of them was you know, a lack of detail and lack of doing the hard work. And, mm -hmm. um, and, so, um, and so I sort of I started concentrating more on, on those things that I'd learned. I mean, I learned more in two years than I had done in the previous 10. They, they give me my edge now. I've had an experience that uh, even my, the guys that I've got on board now haven't had. And it, and it enables me to think of things that, and see around the corner that, that they haven't considered.
you know, I think going down gives you, a, it's a resilience platform that it gives you. So you know that you can, you can deal with things. You've been through mm-hmm. the tough times. You feel confident. I mean, I think in some ways I've got a deeper sense of confidence now than what I had beforehand, even though, you know, if you look at it from the outside, I was a lot more successful back then. But if I look at my business today, it's much more resilient and it's yeah. much more successful. Well, sometimes us dumb blokes, we need an experience before we've actually learned anything. I'm really lucky and I'm lucky I got it. It was done early in the piece. It takes a lot of energy. Businesses take a lot of energy. Yeah. It takes a yeah. lot more when you're actually, you know, at the front end of the, you know, you know, I mean, business owners, I've got a lot of respect for any business owner. It doesn't matter what the business is. And, um, and you know, you, you've got to be not only resilient, but you resilient, but you've got to have a huge amount of general knowledge. I mean, I think that's another thing that I have that I can bring to the table. I mean, the, the guys that work with me now, either from a consultancy role or inside the business or employed by us, they're all specialists and they're incredible. I mean, they're the smartest people I've ever met. But, um, well, one of the things that they don't have is they're not a generalist, and that's what I am, really. I, 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 can, I can understand their, um, um, their specialist field to a certain degree, but, but then I can, I can coordinate those specialist fields. Yeah. And I, can, and, I can, um, and I can judge them in terms of where they should be in terms of importance. You know, at the moment, a lot of businesses in New Zealand um, are going through some tough times. There's going to be people out there that are not looking at what they should be looking at. What's your advice to them? What uh, if you were if you were facing someone who was in a similar situation to where you were twelve years ago? What would you be saying them that they need to focus on right now in their business? Well, I mean that's really hard. Uh, it's a good question. Um, it's hard to answer because everybody's experience is really individual, right? It is mm-hmm. individualized. There's no no question about that. But there are common strains that you know, mm-hmm. and 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 there's lots of things that you could probably take away from it, but. My my view is that um, it's natural to have the self doubt. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think I think looking back now, I mean, my my self doubt was was really quite intense. Um, but um, and, and I don't think it's one of those things you, you can't you can't just snap out of that straight away. You've actually got to go through a process before you regain that confidence in yourself. Mm-hmm. So 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 I guess don't be urgent about it. Don't think it's never going to happen. It will, um, but but you've got to give it time. You know. If, if you know you use the word authentic, if if your confidence moving forward is going to be authentic, then you have to go through the process and accept the fact that you are going through a process. Mm-hmm. But it is just a process, and I think probably embrace it. Like so, you've got to find you've got to find the gold nuggets through that process. I know it's difficult because you know I mean sometimes I was I had no sleep and you, you're so worried about things you couldn't even see. I literally couldn't see in front of me. Um, but but I think it's that is again part of the process and. And I look back now and I, I look back on the tough times, as I say, with fondness, because without them, I wouldn't be who I am today. And so I guess what I'm saying is um, it will pass. Um, it has to go through that process whereby, you know, you, you've, you've taken those learnings and um, you have a deep and, a deep and meaningful understanding about what they mean to you. And, and that's what you will take moving forward. Mm. So, um, um, what helped so you? What helped you to move forward, Matt? Just you know, what are some of those? Probably my um, a, maybe. Mm. I, I do. I, I probably think it's you know. I think it's maybe my upbringing. It's my personality, right? So, um, my personality is to drive forward. So I, I kind of think that's a that's a natural trait potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you lean on anyone? I'm sure I leaned on my family, of course. Like so, um, my wife. Would have she would have carried you know I mean looking back she would have carried quite a lot in terms of my frustration and 
Um, I mean, there wasn't any anger in the house or anything like that. And, and the kids never got, never, I mean, I think Shells and I have had two arguments uh, and, and I think one of the kids um, told us off. So, so that didn't happen. That didn't manifest itself into anything poor in the family life, but she would have taken the stress on, you know, like she would have carried the stress. Um, she obviously clearly carried the financial burden with me. So, um, so in that sense, um, you know, Shelley was a big part to play in all of that. Um, did I lean on anyone? Not really. I think I was also the kind of person that, um, not too proud, but I sort of dug a hole a little bit and, and kind of sort of felt that I had to sort it out. Mm -hmm. um, having my mate ring me and say, there's a desk here for you. That was one of the best things, actually. Like having people around you, mm -hmm. I think is really important. Because at, at one stage, I was just working from home by myself. And that's actually a bad place to be. So if, if you were ever going to do something, you've got to get yourself back around people that are doing stuff around the positivity around and that's natural support in a, in, in, a, in essence right mm -hmm. um so i think that's really important mm -hmm. um, don't, don't try and dig yourself out of the hole you, you even you don't you don't have to you don't have to ask anybody for anything but just being around people i think is quite important i think that's really great advice because it does it shifts your mindset and if your mindset shifts a little bit you get a better perspective and with perspective you can make clearer decisions and i think that that makes the difference and then yeah. from that comes you know comes positivity and um and you can't achieve anything without positivity yeah no conjure up positivity mm. just out of the blue it's got to mm. come from within mm -hmm. so i guess small steps and 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 understand it's a process and don't be so don't mm -hmm. get too frustrated in the sense that um you know it's it's not the end it's actually funny enough i feel like for me it, what i thought was the end was was essentially the beginning that's a great way of looking at it i've got another question for you um how do you get inspired to look at what's going on in your accounts and in the business data-wise? Uh, was there a time that you needed to dig deep and how did you do that in order to look at those horrible yeah, big red numbers? Where, I, mean, I guess that's where a lot of the worry comes from, right? Because mm. the numbers are working against you and you, and, and, and often those numbers, when they work against you, they work against you fast. Like the, it happens so quickly. And, and in, in the business that I was in, time is what, what helps those numbers. And, and when the market's going against you, you don't have time on your hands. I mean, at that point, I mean, I guess from my perspective, there was nothing much I could do about the numbers. There was nothing much I could do. I mean, my properties were, were dropping in value by half and my debt yeah. was increasing every day, yeah. literally, like every day. And so mine got, mine got out of control quite quickly. So okay. it wasn't something that I was ever really going to be in a position to pull back. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then it wasn't until the bankruptcy till I realised that actually I let that go, and I sort of said, well, I can't do anything about that, right? Mm -hmm. I, can't fix it. I think looking at the numbers are, is important to minimise the hurt that other people will feel when those numbers go bad. So you, what you got to do is you got to focus on what you can. I think that's one thing I learned, and that is, yeah, there was a time and I was running around trying to do a whole bunch of stuff, and I was ineffective doing anything. But actually, then when I started focusing on just the small things, what can I do today that makes a difference? Yeah. Even though it doesn't in the big picture of sense makes no difference at all, really. But actually, the point being is that that was quite important because it meant that I did something that was satisfying for that day. Yeah. So you start focusing some of the, on some of the smaller things that actually, you know, that you can make a difference with. I think that's, that's important for your own sanity in a lot of ways. You know, and, and, and if you do something good every day, it's just the start. It's the beginning. For me, I don't go into a job or into, into a project unless I'm going to love it. And generally, there's a reason other than profitability for me to love it so I, I now know that um, I'm at my best when I'm happy I can move mountains when I'm happy when I'm not happy if things aren't happy at home for example I can't do anything 
So if I'm happy, I know I can achieve anything. And so I know what makes me happy, and that is the, the things that I'm good at. And, and, the, and I guess focusing on those things rather than trying to do everything, you know, mm-hmm. understanding what other people are doing that, you, that you're not so good at, but, um, but not trying to do everything. And, and doing what you're good at, and generally what you're good at is what you love. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm a good problem solver, and I'm a creative problem solver. So, um, and I get enjoyment out of doing that. And, but, but ultimately, I guess moving forward in any job or any project that we undertake, I've got to feel a passion for it. I've got to love it for a reason. And they're all different reasons. They're not always the same. As if, if the products that we're producing is going to change people's lives or make a difference to someone's life, then to me, that is my motivation. And that's what I, and that's what I, that's what I love. And, and being careful about not slipping back into some old habits, right? So when the business is starting now to pick up and it's starting to become a very successful business, um, you know, I find myself sometimes, you know, oh, I don't need to worry about that detail. I've got the guys that will do that. And I think, no, hang on a minute. That happened last time. So no, no, I do need to be disciplined. So trying to be a better businessman. I know I'm not the best businessman. So I'm always trying to be better though at what I, at what I do, you know, and that, and that for me is the growth. But you know, we're, we're just sort of really, we're, we're on the cusp. We're, we're sort of beginning again, but we've got some large projects, but you know, we're really proud about what we're achieving, especially in that affordable space. I mean, just the small things, it's the small things like for the first home buyers, you know, we've, we've got King Cross in design, right? This guy's one of the only people that have been in the top three houses of the world award and he's done it twice. I mean, this, he's, a, he's, he's a superstar in terms of world architecture, but he's, he's, he's passionate about what we're trying to achieve. And so that team, I think it's the team that's producing these amazing homes for the price points that we're, that we're trying to achieve, you know, for the cubicle price points, I guess. And instead, one of our one of our drivers is not to strip out. I see often when people are trying to achieve, and they call it a cheap house. They're trying to affordable houses, and they and they, what they do to, to achieve that, they their first thought process is to strip things out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 we we kind of looked at the structure right from the beginning, and how can we actually produce something that's more efficient, and and that's a, and that's not just an affordable house for someone or their, for their first home but it's affordable and then eventually becomes a fantastic investment because that's what first home buyers are wanting, not just to own their own home, but also they want a great investment. So where are the areas that we can see that they're going to get great growth in the future? So that's the areas that we want to concentrate on, not because the land's um, cost effective. It's because we see growth there, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we actually look at fundamentally why those areas are going to have growth. Um, and so, um, and, and then I guess, I guess we spend our time, we, we're very happy about a margin, which has to be a commercial margin, but then, where we can get savings, we put things back into the houses. So when you go to an affordable home or a cubicle home or first home buyer, you know, often you get this stripped back version with no heating and it drives me nuts, right? Because that's not a success. So in our houses, we've got heating in every room. We've got um, stone bench top kitchens. We put in fridges and freezers. We put in washing machine and dryers. And we put in everything other than the barbecue. My voice stopped me from putting a barbecue in the last round that we did. But, but my point is, is that I wanted to see us drive in anything and everything we could. Because when you're a first home buyer, you buy the home and then it's really hard to buy all the other gear. When you come in and you buy a property off us, you're getting stuff that you wouldn't normally get if you were buying any other house. You know, that to me is a success and it's that small stuff. I'm really passionate about the fact or proud of the fact that we, we're, we're providing these homes and they're incredible value. Right? Like the, and the value for money. And so I want the first home buyer to um, live in that home. And when, they've, when they decide they need something bigger or they've got a family that they're having a family and so they need, they need different kind of circumstances, they want to keep that house because it's been a wonderful place for them to live and it's been a great place where they've grown and they're keeping it because it's a great investment. Yeah, it's a whole different way of looking at it, I think. Yeah, it is. It is a really generous way 
Um, I'm going to end the interview there. Cool. From here, our conversation went into talking about our favourite whiskey. So I just ended the recording. But then after a wee while, Matt began sharing again. So I quietly pressed the record button and caught this gem. It might be just, there's just one thing in your day that you've got to be proud of. And then what happens is, is it, and it's, it doesn't matter how big it is, and then you build from there. And the context is, it's going to take time. And, but more importantly, the way I saw it was, it's going to take time before you're doing a lot of things that you're proud of. And then the big picture of all your work that you've been dealing with, you're proud of. And you've started out by doing one thing. And, 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 and it's tiny. But the point is, is those one things, they gather speed and they gather momentum and they also gather a body of work. So after a few years, it's not one thing. It's many, many, many things that you're proud of. And that's where you get your base from, even though yeah. you started off by, I'm taking my kid out for a walk or, you know, I've, 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 you know, I've done something for my wife. Or it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, yeah. I've, I've managed to do one. I mean, there was a couple of small things I was able to do in the business, for example, that helped out people that were, were experiencing pain. And it affected me personally. But I did it because it made it made it it helped them their situation, and that's what made me proud. So you just got to find something, one thing that makes you proud of who you are, and it, yeah. and it starts off small, but over a period of time, you've got a body there that you you know you can stand on. It gives you a plinth of yeah. of who you are. Yeah, perfect. Great advice there, Matt. Listeners, if you're looking for a good quality home in the Auckland area, go and see Matt and his team at the Avant Group. That's A-V-A-N-T group.co.nz. They've got a multitude of projects underway that could be of interest to you. Once again, I'm Johanna Van Olst, business coach and advisor. Thanks for listening to Number 8 Wire. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week at Number 8 Wire. I am Johanna Van Os, business coach and consultant. Please subscribe, it's free. That way you'll never miss an episode and together we'll be able to help more people. You can also contact me through the Facebook page, Number 8 Wire Podcasts. See ya.